Muhammad by Abdullah and I'm Shukran Israelites. Are you sick of me singing yet? No. Can you be done with two? That would be okay. What a story. The giants terrorized an entire army into retreat. As the Israelite army stood on their side of the river, considering this formidable giant foe, boy David came in from the field with only the things that shepherds usually carry along, the staff, the sling, and a bag with a few stones. Provisions for his brothers because he had been sent by his father, Jesse, to go and check up on how the older brothers were doing. David heard Goliath taunting not only his brothers, but the large numbers of soldiers and even King Saul. Now you might recall from last week that God had rejected Saul and that Samuel the prophet had God's virgin, had anointed David. But David's time had not yet come. As Samuel looked at all of David's brothers, all the other older, uh, uh, battle-hardened sons, perhaps, it was none of them. It was this boy. He knew everything about shepherding. And now, here he is, face to face with the Philistine army and Goliath at the forefront. But filled with the spirit of God's anointing, David volunteered. And Saul insisted that David clothe himself in Saul's very own armor. There was chain mail and a helmet and a kingly sword. Because this equipment belonged to the king, we can assume that they were of the finest material. They were the best that could be had anywhere. They had probably been custom designed to fit Saul's tall stature, and he was a full head taller than everybody else in Israel. And David was only a boy. No matter how well that armor fit Saul, no matter how high of quality it was, and no matter how well it had protected Saul, it was a hindrance to David. He couldn't move using the armor of the previous generation. He had only his own simple means of protection. His shepherd's staff and a handful of river stones and a sling. But he had something else too. He had God's blessing. I love the line in the story where David said, The Lord who has saved me from the paw of the lion and the paw of the bear will save me from the hand of this Philistine. David had faith in God. Now just let me fess up here for a minute. I'm not a person who typically uses this imagery of weapons and war and armor and battle very well. I hardly know what to make of it. It's really that foreign to my own life. I want to be a peacemaker, even though I fail miserably at it sometimes, and I think armoring up with the tools not made for us will only hinder the people of faith. In what do we put our trust? Is it in the weapons of our own design? Or is it in the blessing of God? And what is it that we're fighting over anyway? 
not even a couple of weeks ago, we virtually attended the Michigan Annual Conference of the United Methodist Church. And by the way, thank you ladies for your reports. You did a beautiful job and you captured conference very well. It is sometimes inspiring. It is many times boring. It is sometimes infuriating. Conference can be an interesting experience and I recommend it to everybody. Or maybe not. But if you want to participate, it's a good thing to participate in. At this time, especially it's interesting, as we Methodists are holding our breaths, we wait to see what will happen to the larger United Methodist denomination. We'll have a lot of guesses about what the coming years will look like for us. Will we split to do two or more expressions of Methodism? And what does that mean? for local congregations like ours. How will we identify ourselves? Sometimes it feels to me as if we are like the Israelite army staring down something that really scares us. And no matter which side we find ourselves on, we're armed to the teeth. Boys to fight and coward in the back at the same moment really hard to be a Methodist right now. We know change is coming. Change is standing by the river's edge, taunting us, threatening to enslave us with misguided fear and blame. And it is our natural tendency to armor up. We make ourselves entrenched and inaccessible with, to those with whom we feel embattled. How will we solve our differences? Perhaps our differences are irreconcilable. And I hate to admit it, but I think that that is true at this point. After all, the questions in front of us are not new. The decisions we make of who is included in the family of faith and who is excluded from the leadership of the church, well, this is something we've struggled with for many years. And then maybe this is always the way things go. After all, faithful folk have continually been faced with the decisions that threaten to divide us. From right from the very beginning of the formation of the church as an institution, the early church had to decide and draw boundaries around what it is we really profess. What is our doctrine, after all? They felt like they had to draw lines distinguishing between spiritual experiences, and they called one side orthodox and another side heresy. That happened really early on. Step outside of those boundaries of orthodoxy and face condemnation and exclusion and even death. It was qualified and appropriate to serve God and God's it wasn't that long ago, my friends, that I, as a woman, would have been forbidden from standing in this very place, in this very pulpit, to preach. And in many denominations, that remains the case. It wasn't all that long ago that a person of color would have been excluded from this very place where I am standing, this very pulpit. In 
many places it wasn't that long ago that only those who were wealthy could afford sit in the front pews of this church, and the poor folks were relegated to the back. Slaveholders held the seat of honor, while those who were enslaved stood in the back or even out front. These exclusions and the systems around them seem massively strange to us now that we are 50 or 100 or hundreds of years removed. But the question before us now, as a United Methodist people of God, is over the value and giftedness of LGBTQ people. I wonder what the church will say of itself in 50 or 100 years from this present time. I hope it will include some self-reflective criticism. I hope we will say, look at the damage that we did to one another. Look at how much harm we caused in that standoff. Look at what we did when we armored up and went to battle with one another. Who, who was driven off from the church because we acted rashly or we acted in a cowardly manner? Create in me, O oh God, a, a clean heart and renew a right spirit within me. Anybody know what that's from? Psalm 51, from the book of Psalms. Guess who wrote that? David. After years of, after years after his kingship had been established, he wrote that trite, that confessional psalm, create in me a clean heart of God, and renew a right spirit within me. He wrote that after a time of great personal failure. He wrote it after a time of abusing his power and using violence to get what he wanted, creating a clean heart and renew a right spirit within me. It was David's personal prayer of repentance but it easily becomes useful for us as a church to legacy church. Create in us clean hearts, O God. Renew in us the right spirit and grant us your peace. Remove from us the armor of being territorial and overprotective of things and places and principles that don't serve your beloved community and replace that sense of possessiveness with a sense of boundless love. Amen? Amen. Let us sing together, Guide My Feet, and it's hymn number 2208. 